understanding the mindset of somebody who is in prison is not easy. As some of you know I was privileged to be a part-time prison chaplain at three different prisons for a total of 15 years. They then let me out, but it wasn't, it wasn't early release for good behaviour. During one of the early training sessions, I remember uh, the assistant chaplain general saying to us uh, that when prisoners need help, they will try to enlist the help of just anybody and everyone. And I certainly found that to be true. A uh, typical day may go like this, that a prisoner wakes up in the morning, uh, is unlocked, uh, and immediately tells the officer on duty that he needs to make a special phone call because of a, a family crisis. Half an hour later, having been let out and along the corridors, he arrives in the education block for a morning of classes and he speaks to the teacher and takes the opportunity to tell him that there is a family crisis and he desperately needs the opportunity to make a special phone call. At the end of the morning, he comes back along the corridor and before he arrives back at the house block, he sees the chaplain. Father Gordon, he says. We're all father in prison. Well, not keener, but... The rest of us. Father Gordon, he says, I've got a desperate family problem. I need to make an urgent phone call to my family. Can you organise it? Back on the house block before he has his lunch, just to make sure that something happens, he gets an application form and writes down, I need to make a special phone call. I have a family crisis. It is logged in writing. And then later on in the day, before the evening meal, he fills in another application form. This time it's to see a member of the independent monitoring board next time they come in. And he will make a complaint that although he asked X number of people to help him, nothing actually happened. He's doing it in anticipation that actually nobody will have done anything at all. Being shut up behind bars for a long period of time uh, tends to reduce trust in people and a sense of desperation very easily creeps in. And the situation wasn't much the different, different really for, for John the Baptist. And he was simply in prison for doing what God had called him to do. He'd been prepared, called to prepare people for the coming of Jesus into the world. And he did this by challenging people to look at their own hearts, their own lives, their own behavior, their inner attitudes, and to reflect whether they were in line with God's will. And crowds of people, we're told, went out to the desert from Jerusalem and Judea and the regions of Galilee to hear his preaching, even though it made for uncomfortable listening. And many of them responded positively. And they, were, uh, they changed their ways. They repented and they underwent baptism as a mark, as a sign of their repentance. But when John challenged King Herod specifically uh, about his marriage to Herodias, one biblical commentator describes that marriage as having uh, outraged the laws of general decency as well as being um, uh, not in line with Jewish religious teaching. Um, uh, but when uh, John challenged uh, Herod, he did not respond positively. He responded by shutting John up in prison, adding to all the other evil deeds that he'd done, as Luke tells us in his Gospel. So John the Baptist had been doing God's work. He'd spoken God's truth to everybody, regardless of their status. He'd won a response from many people, but his reward was a spell in prison. And he didn't know whether there would be a release day. Of course, in fact, there wasn't. We know the end of the story. He was, in fact, beheaded. No wonder John had his doubts. 
And today's reading tells us how he sent some of his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? Or are we still looking for someone else? Taking into account the normal mindset of prisoners in any prison, and also, given these very special circumstances of John's role as a prophet, it is really not surprising that he had his doubts. He wanted assurance. Now, Jesus described John the Baptist as greater than anyone who had been born. And if that man who was greater than anyone had been born had his doubts, then I guess it's probably all right for you and me to have our doubts from time to time about God. And we don't have to be in prison in order to have doubts. Doubts about God come in all kinds of ways and at all kinds of times, especially in times of stress or illness, particularly sad bereavement or a crisis in life. We find ourselves asking questions perhaps like, how can the God who made everything love each one of us? Why has God let this terrible thing happen to me? I've been a Christian for years and yet it doesn't seem to bring me any great benefits. What hope is there in a messy world of such conflicts? If God is love, how is it that he's given us so much freedom that we make such a terrible mess of everything? And for Christians in some parts of the world who serve God obediently and faithfully, they may well ask that question, why does he not stop people from persecuting us? Why does God appear to be asleep when we need him to do something? Well, if you're sitting here this morning dogged by some doubts or other, I hope you find it encouraging to read this passage that Owen's just read to us this morning and to note particularly that Jesus did not criticise John the Baptist for his doubts. He didn't condemn him. In fact, Jesus went on very definitely to affirm John and his ministry. And in the latter part of this passage, Jesus addresses the crowd and he talks about John, asking them why they made their trips out in the desert to hear this wild preacher. And at that point, Jesus makes it very clear to those who were listening that John was indeed uh, the one who was called to prepare the way for the Messiah. His ministry was uh, validated. So take heart from the way that Jesus dealt with the doubts of John the Baptist. He didn't rubbish his doubts. And if we're serving God faithfully and obediently and just getting on with it, whatever doubts we may have, he will not rubbish our doubts either. But the real question, of course, is how did Jesus deal with the question that John had asked? What was the answer? Remember the question that John asked was, are you the one who was to come? Are you the Messiah? Or are we still looking for another? And what did Jesus reply? He didn't say, my dear cousin, what's happened to your convictions? He didn't say, John, you're doubting a bit more than you should be at the moment. You should have more faith. He didn't, on this occasion, use scripture to prove who he was. He did on other occasions. On that famous occasion, on the first Easter day, when he walked with two people who were in a state of great desperation after the crucifixion, Jesus, we're told, did use scripture to prove who he was. 
But on this occasion, he didn't. He didn't point to Scripture. He didn't offer any kind of philosophical arguments about God's plans. He simply said, go back and report what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. People's lives are being transformed. And that's something you can see, it's something you can hear, it's something you can witness. And of course that was precisely what the people that Jesus lived amongst had come to understand about how God works. We read for our first reading this morning some verses from Psalm 146. And it's a good example of what was very strong in Judaic tradition and what was there very uh, often and frequently in the Hebrew scriptures. This uh, message of God working amongst the, the poor and the oppressed. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He watches over the alien. He sustains the father, fatherless and the widow. And so when people saw Jesus doing the things that he did and saw how the lives of people were changed, they should have recognized and realized without any doubt at all that this was God at work. And in answering John's doubts, Jesus simply pointed to the evidence, the evidence before their very eyes. And evidence is important, isn't it? On many different levels. Evidence is important in a court of law. It's vital to have evidence before a person can be pronounced guilty can't be pronounced guilty just because you don't like the look of somebody and take them off to court or because you think they happen to be in the place where a murder was committed. There has to be some sort of evidence presented to a court. Evidence is crucial in the world of science. Scientists actively seek evidence to test their ideas, even if the tests are difficult and even if they take decades uh, to prove a particular theory. There is evidence needed. Evidence is crucial if somebody's be, to be believed about what they say. Even a simple statement, I love you, requires some evidence. It may require a bunch of flowers, it may require a box of chocolates, but usually it's a bit more than just a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates. It needs commitment to a relationship. And evidence is crucial too in the realms of religious faith. John Macquarie, who was the Lady Margaret Professor of Theology at the Oxford University some years ago, pinned it down very nicely in one very short, succinct sentence. He said, men and women need some concrete manifestation of God's activity, some manifestation that can seize us and bring us into the attitude of faith, some concrete manifestation." Well, we have that concrete manifestation. We have evidence of God's activity amongst us in the life and in the work of Jesus. And when Jesus' own disciples were finding it difficult to get their heads around who he was, on one occasion he said to them, Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, 
believe me when I say, or at least believe me on the evidence of the things I do. The evidence is there. We sometimes say that Christianity is a historical religion. What we mean by that is that uh, it's not just an ideology or a philosophy thought out and reasoned and debated by the, the mind of human beings. It's rooted in a historical event. Jesus is the evidence for God's presence and activity amongst us. And one of those later books in the uh, New Testament, one of the little letters of John, you know those three letters towards the end of the, the New Testament, that if you flick through the Bible quickly, you miss them altogether. But they are gems. And the first letter of John, and the opening words of that letter, begin with this statement that we want to tell you about the word of life, about what we've seen with our eyes, about what we've heard with our ears, and what we've touched with our hand. The evidence is in the senses. People had witnessed the life and the deeds of Jesus on earth. God's presence amongst us. And so evidence is a very powerful thing. And those events that Jesus pointed to in his answer to John the Baptist were very powerful. They were the stuff that changed lives. You can doubt or you can dispute a theory. You can argue with an idea or a proposition. But if you've got evidence before your eyes that something has happened, it's very difficult to dispute that. And there are two stories from the, the New Testament that illustrate this very forcibly. One is the story, I'm sure you all know it, of the, the man born blind, recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 9. It's a long story. It's placed, of course, within the wider context of the Pharisees trying to work out who Jesus was and uh, questioning and investigating his authority. And after the man is healed of his blindness, they find him and they give him the third degree. They say, how can you now see? Who do you think this man is? And not content with the answers they get from him, they set about his parents. They say, is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And then they go back to the man himself and we know, say, we know this man, this man Jesus is a sinner. What's he doing then? And the man healed of his blindness responds in one sentence with words of unarguable authority. I do not know who he is, but one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. That is irrefutable evidence. And the other story comes in the Acts of the Apostles, where a lame man was healed through the prayers and the touch of Peter and John. And again, that story is placed in the context of a, a religious argument. The religious authorities trying to refute the preaching of Peter and John, the apostles, about the resurrection of Jesus. And they want to imprison Peter and John for leading the people astray with doctrine. But they're on a bit of a loser because in front of them they have a man who was lame and lame from birth and used to sit and beg outside the temple every day and now he walks. The evidence is irrefutable. We can debate questions of faith for a lifetime. We can express our doubts about what God 
about God and what he's like. But we don't have to rely on getting all our arguments in place. And we don't have to rely on getting the, finding the most plausible theory about God. We don't, thankfully, even have to rely on the strength of our feelings of faith at any given time. We have evidence before our eyes of lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the history of the saints through 2,000 years and before our very eyes, even amongst us within our fellowship here this morning. And of course, we don't just have evidence for our own benefit. We are called to be part of the evidence of the presence and the love of God as well. Earlier in our service, Tony uh, interviewed Nana uh, about the welcome boxes and shared that appeal to, uh, for us to share in giving a welcome to those who arrive here in London as refugees from places of unimaginable horror and fear. And some of those people will have lost all faith in human kindness and many of them may well have considerable doubts about the existence of God and certainly the presence of a loving God in their lives. But a knock on the door, a smile, a word of friendship, a box of welcome essentials are incontrovertible evidence that somebody cares. And a door hopefully is opened into an even larger room where they may discover a God who cares. And these welcome boxes, of course, are just one example because most of our mission projects of a church are of a similar kind. We are part of providing the evidence of a God who cares. Three days ago was the birthday of Teresa of Avila. And if you forgot to send her a birthday card, don't worry, because she was born 502 years ago. Uh, Teresa is remembered for various things, but I think probably best of all for a short verse which is very apposite to the message we've been listening to this morning. And her words are often quoted in Christian circles. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hand through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the feet, the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And so may we be part of that evidence, that concrete manifestation that people need in order to find the God of love. Let's keep a moment of quietness. Father God, thank you for the concrete evidence that we have of your love made real in Jesus. And may that really spur us on to celebrate with all our heart and mind and soul and strength 
as we come to this Christmas season. Thank you for the clear evidence of your power to bring transformation to the most desperate situations when we respond in faith. And may your Holy Spirit move in our hearts and lives in such a way that we may be part of the living evidence of your compassionate love. For we ask it in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.